I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and CEO of the United States Study Center here at the University of Sydney. And of course, the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people uh, who are part of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Today, we're joined by Ruth Greenwood uh, for a conversation about the role that the courts and the law uh, is playing and is likely to play uh, in, in this election and, and indeed in, in elections more generally in the United States, but of course, uh, special focus on, on the impending 2020 election. Um, a little bit about Ruth before we get started. Um, Ruth, of course, is a, is a graduate of the University of Sydney, uh, uh, was born and raised here in Sydney and attended the University of Sydney and getting degrees in law and science before, um, like a lot of us, uh, went to the United States uh, for the next stage of her life, which is still ongoing. Um, Ruth got a master's uh, of law from Columbia. And, and, you know, I have a personal association with Ruth. Uh, Ruth um, reached out to me and got me involved in one of the most amazing things I've done professionally, and that is be involved with some, um, some litigation um, on challenging partisan gerrymandering. And, and Ruth, in that capacity, was acting in her role as co-director of the Voting Rights and Redistricting Program uh, with a body known as the Campaign Legal Center, which is one of the largest and most successful um, nonpartisan groups using law and the courts to help ensure that elections in America are free and fair. And it was in that context with that gerrymandering litigation uh, that um, we did two cases together, uh, one in Wisconsin and uh, challenging state legislative districts there. And again, in North Carolina, challenging their congressional districts. Both of those cases, um, uh, thanks to Ruth's uh, crafty and professional stewardship uh, and corralling of her expert witness, <laughs> uh, among other things. Um, but anyway, all that is to say, it was a fantastic team that Ruth uh, assembled and, um, and we prevailed at trial in both instances. And that's the, those were the first verdicts um, against uh, partisan gerrymandering in the United States in, in, in 25 years. Everybody knew that that was going to head to the Supreme Court where it did, and, and Ruth uh, saw those cases all the way to the Supreme Court, where the cases didn't arrive quite in time um, for, uh, although we can talk about that, Justice Kennedy's key role in, in, in those cases. But in any event, it was quite the ride. And again, as I said, one of the most um, rewarding and um, amazing things I've done as a political scientist, um, and that was 2016 and 2017. Um, but, but Ruth, for, for Ruth, the work goes on uh, and, is, and is high, uh, you know, has, has heated up tremendously ahead of the cycle. And as I was thinking about having this sort of a conversation, uh, Ruth, sort of an obvious uh, candidate to have that conversation with, but I felt that it would be uh, appropriate to disclose uh, our professional connection uh, before uh, we get into this. And so with that, by way of introduction, hello, Ruth, greetings from Boston, or <laughs> greetings from Sydney. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Hello, it's good to it's good to be here. Um, you see my dog in the background because we are all um, on quarantine, and so I work from home all of the time now. Um, we I talked to my family, and they sent me pictures of themselves out at dinner in Sydney, uh, and I'm like, what is out? <laughs> what a friend! <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, we're so delighted you're able to give us this hour of your evening, and and we were talking ahead of time. Ruth, you've got a case coming up pretty soon. You're, you're heading off to Virginia? Yeah, I have a case in, um, in Virginia, in, in Norfolk, Virginia, and the judge doesn't see the merit in doing the case by Zoom. So I have ordered a lot of N95 masks um, and I'm gonna head down for a two week trial. Uh, it, it is frustrating given, I mean, we have witnesses that have pre-existing conditions and can't appear and all kinds of things. Um, it is strange to me how some places are very extreme in terms of how they've dealt with this quarantine and other places are like, Let's just go into court, do it like usual. So, do you think that signals anything about the partisan predilections or predispositions of the judge? I don't know. I think in this case, he just um, doesn't like Zoom very much. Fair he's, enough. He's, let's give him. Let's let's go there before we start imputing partisan motive. Yeah, fair enough. Hey, Ruth, I thought before. Look, there's a lot to cover, um, quite obviously, and with the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg, um, another. Uh, R.G., uh, Ruth Greenwood, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, we'll, we'll certainly get in the Supreme Court and, 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 and much more. But I wanted for our audience here, um, we reached out to um, current law students here at the University of Sydney and other law students around the country, uh, some of whom are on the call today. Um, I'm wondering, Ruth, if we could just kick off with how you go from doing an undergraduate law degree at the University of Sydney, just literally across the street from me here, uh, all the way to being at the heart, you know, CLC, the role you have there, being at the in the thick of it with one of the biggest deals in the US, and that is election law and litigation um, ahead of a, a very contentious election. Tell us a little bit about that journey, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Um, so actually, when I was at law school, uh, it was still downtown. We were in the basement um, opposite the, the federal court in the state Supreme Court. But anyway, um, uh, I, I really loved Helen Irving was my professor. I, I think she might still be there of constitutional yes, she is. law. Yes, she yes. completely inspired me with, with that. Um, and then I worked as a clerk, uh, a tip staff, before I say clerk right in America, um, for Justice Austin, who was then at the New South Wales Supreme Court. Um, and I talked to him about being interested in going to Columbia, which was based on like, I liked the colors of the website, New York seemed exciting. You know, another professor had said, don't, don't just consider Oxford and Cambridge, what about, what about Columbia? Um, anyway, my judge uh, had actually taught at Columbia. Uh, oh, wow. So he was all about it. And he was like, when am I writing your reference? I was like, let's do this. <laughs> um, and so uh, I worked uh, for a year and a half at Allen's, which is now yes. Allen's Theatres. Yeah, um, and I actually, I mean, I got some really good grounding in litigation there um, and I enjoyed it, but uh, I had always had this yearning, you know, for policy, sorry. That, that's Alan's here in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was got Alan's it, got it. Yeah. Yeah, I actually yeah. started paralegaling for them when it was Alan, Alan and Hemsley. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was, that was many years um, in Sydney. So I worked for them uh, for a year and a half and went over to Columbia to do my LLM. I got to America in August of 2008. Um, and so Obama <laughs> was on ballot and I was like, this guy's cool. Uh, I went to the law school Democrats and said, 
can I volunteer to help? Actually, I wasn't the only Australian. Another friend said, look, I know my accent might not help. Like I can, I can go and say, you know, um, Australians, for, um, Australians for McCain, if that's helpful for you. Anyway, so I went um, and was put into Virginia to help out um, to do election protection, which I was like, what, what is this? Um, they put me at a polling place and they said, look, it doesn't matter whether someone's a Democrat or a Republican, you just need to make sure they can vote. Um, and I was used to Australian voting where, you know, there's a sausage sizzle and it's exciting and everyone's in, you know, and I was imagining maybe that it would be like, you know what you see that the Democratic and Republican conventions are sort of a party. I thought, oh, the polling place will be like that. And I got there, it was raining. There was a line of very quiet people just not no signage, just nothing. And I was like, oh, this is really weird. And then people just started coming out and saying, oh, and I would check as they came out, have you voted? Well, they said I couldn't vote because I moved house. You know, they said I have to go to this other place. And so then I had this phone to ring, you know, line to ring and work out all their problems. Um, also in that place in um, Prince William County, Virginia, there had been signs up in the black areas of town um, on the weekend before the election saying 2008 will have historic turnout. So Republicans will vote on Tuesday and Democrats will vote on Wednesday, <laughs> um, which is just straight up voter suppression. Um, sure. And I just couldn't believe it. Anyway, so I took election law um, at Columbia with Nate Persily, um, oh. who was just a sort of emerging, you know, yep. just a new professor, liked the area, a bit of a nerd. Um, and, and it turns out um, one of the things he really, he, could, he actually does a lot now, but one of the things at the time he really liked was redistricting. And I had the science background. I really liked um, data, data. <laughs> God, I'm so sorry. Right. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I thought American politics was interesting. You know, in a, in, at Sydney Uni, I would meet up with people and see what was happening on Super Tuesday on Wednesday morning and so on. Um, yep. And so, and so, yeah, so anyway, so I decided I wanted to do some more election law. I actually came back to Australia for a little bit, worked at Allen's for a little longer until I then uh, came back to end of 2009 um, and uh, just started working, thinking like, I'll do this for a while and maybe I can go and work with the Australian Electoral Commission that does interesting huh. stuff, you know, with, um, uh, with Aboriginal Australians, with um, South Pacific democratization, you know, I thought, oh, mm -hmm. wow, that, you know, that can be my thing. Um, actually, though, at the time when I was applying for a job to do that with the Ele Electoral Commission in Australia, I also had applied to work with the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, to do voter protection. And yep. I had met um, Nick, who is now my husband. <laughs> yes. um, and I got the DNC job. Uh, I met Nick at a redistricting conference. Actually, Nate, personally, the professor, um, had invited both of us. And so I was like, I'm going to take this job and just see how it goes. You know, and then my, my two-year E3 visa became another one, became a green card, became a, you know, citizenship. <laughs> So that's how oh, it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a great story and and um you know again full disclosure uh ruth's uh husband nick stephanopoulos um uh was sort of the intellectual architect of um sort of the 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 concept that we we sought to bring to bear in the redistricting cases the gerrymandering cases that i worked on uh Ruth and Nick have moved from Chicago to, to Harvard just in the last year or so. Um, and, and the aforementioned Nate Persley, um, now at Stanford Law School, and is sort of, you know, one of the two or three leading lights in oh, election law. And a lot of, it's a very empirical, uh, data-driven part of the law and lots of touch points with the social sciences and political science in particular and, and Nate's really leading that. Um, 
All that is for an Australian audience, by the way, just the, how lively this is in the United States for both good and bad reasons. Um, I mean, in Australia, we have the Australian Electoral Commission. This sort of been a, Ruth, I would characterize it as a bit of, you know, bilateral disarmament across Australian political parties. Um, I think the equilibrium where, uh, you, you know, a, a, a largely, you know, an almost overwhelmingly apolitical Australian Electoral Commission, a federal body with a mandate to handle the administration of federal elections um, stands in marked contrast to the United States where, um, as, as well you know, and but just for the benefit of Australian listeners, it's a key point that will come up in a moment. Um, the states uh, are in the United States uh, under the constitution um, govern their federal elections. So elections to federal offices, the presidency, the House of Representatives, the Senate, um, federal legislative and, and constitutional offices, how those elections are held, or indeed, if, if indeed you even have an election, <laughs> something we'll come back to in a moment, uh, is a matter for each individual state. And, um, uh, and then on the other hand, um, suing in state court, so there's all sorts of overlays. Do you go to state court or federal court? Is this a, a state level thing or a federal level thing? Australia with the AEC just sort of wipes all that out. There's this body, it does all this stuff, its decisions and its procedures apply everywhere. And Ruth, just finally, last thought on that, hearing how you got started, people turning up at a polling place and being told, no, you're at the wrong place. Well, that doesn't happen in Australia, right? Um, you can show up pretty much anywhere, <laughs> certainly in your electorate. But the idea that a voter has to go not only voting in their district or in Australia, we would say their electorate or Commonwealth Electoral Division, uh, on, on voting day, a voter could go anywhere. No, I went to Sydney Town Hall um, to, to vote, right? It's not, not a big deal. It's like, hey, I was in the city, popped in. Thank you very much. Um, in fact, you know, I voted back um, when I was still eligible to vote in Australia um, at the at the embassy, right? I went to the embassy in yeah. Washington DC and they could pull up my ballot and give it to me. Thank you very much. In America, yeah. you know, what you know, in fact it's not even that you necessarily have to be in the right physical building, right? They have this thing in Ohio, they call it right church, wrong pew. Um, you go to one polling place, but there's, you know, ward two here and ward three yes. there. You go up to yes. ward two and they say, we'll give you a provisional ballot that we won't count because you cast it in the wrong place. And all you were supposed to do was go over there. In to the wrong line. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, 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 look, it's... On the, um, Go ahead, Ruth. Yeah. About the, the federal um, electoral commission thing, because in 2008, uh, there were a bunch of other international students in my class and we were like, this is ridiculous. Why doesn't America just have an electoral commission, right? We all do this in other countries. Um, now, the idea of Bill Barr, who is the um, attorney general, who's talking about, you know, sending stormtroopers in essentially polling places. Imagine if he were running an electoral commission. I'm sort of thankful that the states ah, have some yeah, Okay, okay, okay. And, 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 and well said, Ruth, because, you know, that's what political science tells us about federalism. Um, it, multiple veto points, as, as we say in, uh, in the political science literature, but that's, it's a good point. Um, hey, look, um, we're already 19 minutes past the hour. So let, let's, um, look, let's start with the, you know, the news from last weekend, and that's the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Um, I'm wondering, Ruth, if you could 
use, you know, reflect on that for a moment, perhaps take it as an opportunity to reflect on number one, the politicization and, and sort of the ideological polarization of the Supreme Court, number one. Again, something that for non-Americans, it's, it's striking, and I think can't be reinforced enough. Um, but number two, perhaps the way you see at least Ginsburg's legacy and, 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 and what comes next, but, but perhaps springboard us then into, you know, how the vacancy is becoming an election issue itself and uh and and you know that's plenty for you to to chew on and i might i might pick it up after you have a swing at that yep. yeah well i mean in terms of, of justice ginsburg um she essentially there have been two civil rights heroes in in law in recent years there was thurgood marshall you know who was the author of brown v board of education the, the case that said that segregation is unlawful um, and he was appointed to the court in 1967 and, and made it through to 1991. And then there was Justice Ginsburg, who in the 70s brought all of the cases um, to ensure women's rights. I saw a, you know, a list going around Twitter of all the things that you can do now as a woman because of what Justice Ginsburg did. And it's like, things I do in my life, <laughs> you know, <laughs> do things without my husband's permission, um, you, know, not, you know, be able to continue my job, though I've had a baby. Um, so, so she, I mean, she was the women's rights lawyer. She started the women's rights project at the, the ACLU. Um, and there was a point to the court in 93. So aside from 91 to 93, we have had a civil rights lawyer on the Supreme court. Um, now there are none. Um, the, and, and that's just sad as a person who does civil rights law, it's, it, it's, it's bad. Um, but in terms of the, um, uh, partisan composition, uh, it was already tenuous um, in that uh, the, everybody refers to them as the liberal justices and the conservative justices. You know, um, John Roberts, the chief justice, uh, came out, I think, last year with a letter talking about how there's no such thing as Obama judges and Trump judges, and we all just call balls and strikes. And it was just roundly laughed at um, because that's exactly what they are um, in most contexts. In fact, the reason that people note that John Roberts voted one way or the other on the Obamacare decision is because everyone expects them to just follow, you know, what they're, the person who appointed them, um, you know, was politically. Um, this wasn't always the way it really happened um, in the 1970s, um, but since then it's, it's, it's entrenched. So now um, you have only three um, of the pro progressives left and, and Justice Breyer is, is old. <laughs> um, there's also Justice Kagan um, and Justice Sotomayor. So that's that side. Um, there are five conservatives. So adding another conservative, if that's what Trump is able to do, would make it six three. Now the, or in if John Roberts is going to vote, you know, the right way sometimes, you know, five four the wrong way. So for for some things, um, like there are there is another. I think it's the third um, Obamacare um, case going up to the Supreme Court this term. And so sure, if you end up with with um, another conservative, then John Roberts is in the dissent. So it matters for policy decisions. In terms of election law, um, we, I know you said at the beginning, we're one of the most successful organizations, you know, compared to a, a vast <laughs> sea of, of loss. <laughs> um, in fact, I said to one of my colleagues when we were going up for the case I did with you, right, the, 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 um, the Wisconsin and North Carolina cases, we went up what, 2018 and 2019 to the Supreme Court. And and, um, and I was saying to him, I just don't know what I'm going to do if I lose you. Know, this has been so many years of my life and et cetera. And he goes, don't worry. He goes, 
he, he's a campaign finance lawyer, had been at the FEC. He's like, I've lost every Supreme Court case I've ever been involved in. Citizens United, McCut, you name it, I lost it. And I was like, okay, great. So now we have a little support group <laughs> at the office. Um, anyway, so in terms of election law, the Supreme Court wasn't good anyway. Um, so I, I sort of consider it lost for a generation in any case. Um, in terms of people's real life and policies, you know, this could be terrible. The, the talk at the moment is um, that Trump will appoint, uh, will, will nominate Barbara Lagoa, who is a judge um, from Florida, a uh, Cuban American, um, uh, not necessarily a clearly conservative um, vote, except she was involved in one of the cases that we did um, trying to re-enfranchise formerly incarcerated folk. So this is not currently incarcerated folk in Florida. People who have <laughs> been in prison have left finished their obligations and now want to vote. Um, and she you know, voted against us on that. So I don't know that she's going to be particularly good on democracy either. Um, I also think it's interesting that Trump is choosing, I mean, if he chooses her, it will be very clearly because he thinks it's going to help him win Florida. And the idea of choosing a Supreme Court justice for the, for the sake of an election is, is crazy, right? I mean, I know that people have chosen you know, either conservative or liberal people. Um, but for this, you know, for the next month, get a flash in the pan reality TV thing. Yeah. Um, it's totally new. Well, Florida is an incredibly big prize electorally. Um, but you're right. I, I can't, I can't think of a time when, well, I can't think of a, of, of nomination being to the, to the court being this close to an election. Um, number one. Um, but, but, so I guess that sets the scene. So of course it's going to be viewed through an electoral prism, um, but yeah, pretty remarkable. And, you, know, you know, on top of everything else, I, I've been saying in, you know, this election was already the volume was already turned up to eleven. It just went up to thirteen. Um, with when you throw on uh, the nomination, um, um, Ruth, you said you think the court is there's a solid majority there against voting rights or the expansion of voting rights. Um, I know, was there a window there with Kennedy before he went off the court? That's true. When I say, yeah, exactly. When I say that, 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 that well, that's in the past. So, so yeah. No, yeah. but that's what I mean. I mean, once we lost Kennedy, that, that was the last hope because he had been good on some things, for example, um, racial gerrymandering, striking things down as racial gerrymanders, um, protecting section, oh, sorry, the, the voting, like a key provision of the voting, not all of the key provisions, but some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act, you know, Kennedy had been helpful. Um, it, it's the Roberts, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, group as well as Thomas and Alito that means there's just I don't think a lot of hope for ele election law. Yeah. Um, that's, I don't know that that means that there's not a lot of hope for a, a fair election outcome right if this actual Supreme Court has to do like a Bush v Gore type decision um, the, the one thing in favor is that it, it if the election is close people retreat to their partisan you know corners and that's kind of that so I imagine that Roberts and whoever would just side with Republicans but if it's not close and it's a question of you know dissent into anarchy <laughs> um, or, or authoritarianism I would hope that um, that that John Roberts and even Brett Kavanaugh would would go the right way and say well, well wait a second we actually care about the Constitution um, they have a self-interest reason for that um, because if Trump is and uh, maybe Everyone hasn't seen this, but today um, Trump answered a question um, about the peaceful transfer of power. And he talked about how he wasn't sure that there would be good ballots and maybe there didn't need to be a transfer at all. Um, 
I guess he was saying is not going to count any votes. Um, you know, if that sort of thing came up, um, I, I would hope that the Supreme Court would say, well, wait a second, once you throw out like the electors from a democracy is the next thing you throw out the Supreme Court. And so maybe they will actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. Um, yeah, part of me uh, just thinking through, is that why 6-3 versus 5-4 or 4-4? Four, four? Well, 4-4 four, four can be four, good if you're in the right. No, no, but so, well, it wouldn't, it would be 5-3, right? Yeah, but yeah. if it is 4-4, four, four, the interesting thing comes up, this is what we hoped when Kennedy had left it, at least if it's 4-4, four, four, um, you can't overturn anything 4-4. Four, four. So if you go through a, a favourable yeah, circuit, yeah, yeah. You know, rather than sort of like go through California, get a good decision, the Supreme Court can't overturn it. Now, if it's if it's Florida that is, um, you know, the Bush v. Gore state and you're going through the federal courts, then. Yeah, and, and that's that's the that's a key point. Um, Again, I think, I think anybody on this call is probably cognizant of this, but um, uh, one of the, what will be a lasting legacy, if, if Trump is a one-term president, or even if he's a two-term president, but, um, but one of the legacies of the, of the Trump presidency is, by my count, uh, about approaching 20% of the federal bench are, are now... Is it that high yet, Ruth? I, I know one six sixteen percent of the bench was vacant when he came to power. Oh, oh, he's yeah, he's appointed more, I think, in his one term than Obama got in his two terms. It's not insane. This is what Nixon, if my husband is ever the optimist. Um, uh, so it, it, it's not like it can't be uh, undone. You know, federal um, positions come up reasonably often. If you were to change to a, a different president next year, um, the federal bench, aside from the Supreme Court, would probably just have its usual turnover. So there's still some places that... Because uh, below, below SCOTUS, they do age out, right? They, they go to senior status. At... They go to senior status. They choose to go to senior status so they can stick around. Um, oh, pardon but... me. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hey, and... Real quickly, Karen Hannon just makes the point, um, and and yes, it's a fair point, Karen. I'm not. I'm not. Isn't the point the not that we've got this nomination close to the election, but whether it's legal and/or constitutional? Well, yes, it is legal and constitutional. I was making the point about its political impact and and the way it's being used to perhaps uh, you know drive voter turnout or, or sway people's, uh, and I think that's what's novel here. It's it's not to dispute. Um, the legality or the constitutionality of 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 what um, of what of what may be about to happen with an appointment this close to an election, um, and finally Fred Shilton who sticks his hands up and says he's a fellow Allen's alum. Yes, um, I work for Fred. <laughs> I was his. Oh, you know Fred. Yeah. Okay, it's it's one of those calls. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but uh, just wants to uh, if we could close out the the conversation about Scotus Ruth with. Um, Judge Barrett versus Judge uh, Lagoya. Um, um, I mean, you've you've made the case as to why Trump might be wanting to think about uh, Lagoa and with the Florida and the Cuban American pivotal coalition of votes there. Da 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 da. What what's the case for or against Judge Barrett if you're Donald Trump and? perhaps Senate Republicans at this point. Yeah, I mean, Amy Coney Barrett is a judge in, um, she sits in the Seventh Circuit, which is in Chicago, where I used to live. Um, she's from Indiana. She went to they call it Notre Dame. Um, which yeah, is she taught at Notre Dame. Dame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she went there and then she taught there. She clerked for oh, Justice okay. Scalia. She has, I believe, five or six children. She's very conservative. Um, 
she'll be, I actually don't know that she has any election law cases um, that we can speak to, although I imagine she will not be our friend on them. Um, as, as for policy, the thing that she will be very eager to do would be to overturn Roe v. Wade. So that was the case that said that women, um, that, that, that the constitution guarantees a right to reproductive health, specifically to um, access to abortions. Um, and there have been efforts to chip away at that, um, but she has, has been more vocal than others in saying that she would overturn it completely. Now that wouldn't mean that you can't have access to reproductive care in America. It would mean that if you're a state that doesn't want to offer it, um, you can restrict access. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting electoral uh, calculation. Um, you know, again, it's not to, to, to dispute the legality or the constitutionality at all, but... but well, exactly. Know. Constitutionally, advise and consent, right? The president gets to yeah, choose yeah, someone yeah. and the Senate yeah. can approve them. But, but um, this is... The hypocrisy is the issue, right? When, when, wow. um, yeah, when uh, Ken, oh no, uh, when Justice Scalia died back in, in 2016, Mitch McConnell, as head of the Senate, um, said February was too too close to an election to be appointing someone, and so you couldn't possibly do it. Um, and so Obama, who nominated Merrick Garland, never got um, him in. Now it's you know a couple of, in fact, ballots have already been sent out, and um, uh, and Mitch is like, let's let's get someone through, let's nominate them, <laughs> let's get them in. <laughs> um. Um, so, uh, I want to turn the conversation now to, to 2020. Um, and that is, uh, we were talking earlier, Ruth, um, and, and one of the thing that's, well, ripped from the headlines, uh, literally today, I woke up this morning, Sydney time and, and Twitter is aflame with Trump speaking from the podium of the briefing room in the, in the, in the White House, um, where he basically says, you know, asked if, you know, he will participate in a peaceful transfer of power, presumably if he, right, if he loses the election being the presumption there, uh, he, he responded with, well, if, uh, if, we, if we essentially, uh, there, there won't be any need for a transition uh, if we, if we do away with these very problematic, uh, the ballots, as he said, and he, and he means absentee or mail ballots. Um, um, and as we were reflecting on that, Ruth, ahead of the call, you made the interesting observation that a lot of election law litigation is about, um, people having access to the, to the ballot box. Whereas what's interesting about 2020 is that there's a lot of pre-gaming, it seems, about the counting of the ballots. And I'm wondering if you could just tease that distinction out for our, for our Australian listeners. And sort of in so doing, I think I'm asking you to give us a lay of the land of what election law litigation looks like. We did redistricting cases, obviously. That's one, that's one thing. But, but this closer to the election itself this, this sort of litigation, indeed, the Virginia case you're about to do is sort of, I think, a, a more typical sort of litigation, but 2020 has some novelty perhaps associated with it that you're alluding to? Yeah, so I mean, the, the thing with usually what I mean, and what I've done in you know, 2012, 14, 16, 18, these, these sorts of elections, um, you are looking at places that are getting left out. Um, in terms of access to the ballot. And it used to be the case that sometimes it wasn't even uh, malicious intent. It was just, you know, the, the administrators hadn't thought about the fact, oh, you know, a bunch of people don't have cars. They can't drive to a polling place. We need to make sure it's near a train station or a bus station. Um, 
Uh, and so you often would be doing things on behalf of historically disenfranchised um, voters, uh, African Americans, Native Americans, young voters, often uh, students who are at colleges and have you know, different rules apply and so on. So that often was the, the thing, or how many um, polling places there were, often they would try to you know, have less polling places in the Democratic areas and more in the Republican areas or, or, or vice versa, depending on the state. Um, the, the reason that Bush v. Gore, one of the reasons that Bush v. Gore was so um, different is because it was about the counting of ballots. And so the whole issue in there was about whether they should continue or should stop counting ballots and, and the, the um, rules under which ballots should be counted or not. Um, and so in that decision, the court said, we are limiting this to its facts. It has no precedential value. Now that obviously at the time, everyone was like, yeah, because it's just a made up, you just made up this provision in the constitution. Um, now, since then people have tried to use Bush v. Gore, um, but really only again, in the context of saying, well, you need to treat different counties equally when you're casting ballots. The thing that will come up here, if, if it goes the way that Trump is hoping, um, is questions as to um, which ballots get counted. So if you, if you get an absentee ballot sent to you, you only receive it the day before the election, you put it in that day, but it doesn't get there for 10 days because the mail service is overrun because everyone's ordering Amazon at home because you know we're in quarantine. Um, you know, then do those ballots count or not? Um, and so uh, those decisions haven't been previously made and they certainly haven't been made post-election. Um, there was a little foreshadowing of that um, in Wisconsin in a primary this year on the eve of the election, the Supreme Court said, if the ballots aren't returned, sorry, if, if the ballots, uh, if you submit the ballot on election day with a postmark, then it can be counted. There becomes a problem because not all ballots get postmarks anyway. The US, the United States Postal Service is having its whole own thing. Um, but the, yeah, so the, the, the issue though that's gonna come up is not just about the counting, but then also how that translates to um, the Electoral College. And honestly, you know more about this than I do, Simon, maybe I'm gonna learn. Um, but the, the Electoral <laughs> College, right, they get together on January 6th and they, they sort of vote. Um, but you know, who are these people? <laughs> are they allowed to change who they vote for? Um, who appoints them? Is it, there, there's questions about the legislature. Does the legislature include the governor or not? Um, crucially, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania have democratic governors, um, but um, mixed or, or Republican um, state house and Senate, so. Yeah, so, so I'll just weigh in on that. I'm just getting a bit of feedback. That's first time that's ever happened on one of these calls, but it seems to have stopped now. That's good. You muted yourself, did you? Okay. Um, <clears throat> um, the, um, the issue there, Ruth, that since you put it on the table, and there's some great writing on this. There's a, there's a piece on the Atlantic that just came up today, uh, which in turn um, references an article uh, from uh, a law professor, at Ohio State, sort of wargaming, if you will, these sorts of scenarios, all of which are legal and, and constitutional, if unconventional, where, um, as I said earlier, the states have the power, they, they determine the method and nature of elections to federal office. Um, the idea that you have a mass election to determine who a state's electors in the electoral college are, uh, is a choice. Uh, and indeed, um, as recently as about the 1820s, you know, the Republic is 30, 40 years old by then. Um, um, about, only about half of the states at the time were using mass elections uh, as a way to determine 
who the state's electors in the electoral college were. And so there's some, a fair amount of it out there now, speculation and, and trying to imagine if there is sufficient doubt or illegitimacy or what controversy, however, whatever you want to call it, about who actually won the election in a given state, that that may give enough political headroom, not that they may need a lot, but, but may give enough political headroom to a state legislature. And the scenario is a Republican state legislature, let's just pick a state, oh, Pennsylvania, um, to say, uh, uh, there has to be a certification of the results and, and the state legislature sends it, it's, its certified uh, uh, slate of electors to the Electoral College. Um, they may say, we don't believe the, uh, the election result. We're going to take matters into our own hands. And then there's the question of, well, but if the governor's a Democrat, can, can the governor get in the way of that? And so the constitution says it's the legislature that shall make that ascertainment as to who the electors. So there's some real gray zone there, none of which has been sort of authoritatively litigated. There's opinion on both sides as to how that would go. But we're talking sort of nuclear scenarios being talked about in a way that that I wish I could say are in the land of fantasy. But, but I think the amount of heat being put into this, Ruth, um, by the president himself in, in some cases, tilling the soil, creating the conditions under which a, a controversy about elect uh, mail ballots um, does create sort of enough political space for a state legislature to take that incredibly bold step of, of setting aside um, election results. Um, you know, I think, I think the, you know, the probability of that is not negligible. And, and moreover, um, you would, there's a, there's a set of, circumstances in which there's an, the Electoral College count is close enough that that could end up being dispositive. Um, and I'm just, I guess, to throw it back to you, Ruth, as a question, in the election law community, what, how serious is that being taken, number one? Um, you know, there's the usual grist of the mill election law cases, the good, hard, solid toil, brick by brick work of ensuring the roles are kept up to date and people aren't being booted off and felons aren't disenfranchised for life, or at least they're being treated in a way consistent with state law and whatnot. All of that precinct place consolidation, access to the mail ballot. But then this sort of more titanic nuclear stuff about the state legislature may intervene. Um, are the big, big serious players in election law and you know, people you're in conversation with and part of your network. So are they taking this seriously? Um, and, and the analogy I, I have in mind here, Ruth, is are the Democrats bringing a knife to a gunfight here? That, that, um, and, and the people that you, you know, you, you're in daily contact with, uh, the people understand, you know, the, the, how hardball, potentially at least, and, and perhaps more than potentially, um, um, the other side might be playing. Yeah, well, so I will say that um, the one of the frustrations of election lawyers in this period before the election is that though these cases are important and we want to talk about them and the, the ones that you refer to as the sort of run-of-the-mill ones about straight-up disenfranchisement, though they are important, we don't want to 
hyperinflate them so that everybody thinks, oh my goodness, I'm going to be disenfranchised. I'm not turning up, right? That creates disenfranchisement and confusion in itself. Right. Right. Um, if the focus is on, will your vote be counted after the election? Hopefully the response of the public is, well, I'm going to go vote, right? You can have the fight about whether it counts later, but I'm actually going to go vote. If people feel like their vote doesn't count, they're not going to vote. And so that, that affects it as well. So hopefully there isn't hmm. too much confusion. The other thing election lawyers prefer is when the election is not close. And so it doesn't matter whether you count, you know, the, the thousand ballots that we found in the, you know, the back of someone's car. And I'm not even joking about that. That happens every election. Some election administrator pulls out some ballots. Um, so um, the, th that's kind of the, the ground level of it. Um, in terms of how likely um, this stuff uh, is to actually to happen, I, I think Trump is laying the groundwork to be able to you know, to pull something like this. I thought it was interesting that at the Democratic convention, um, all of the, the top people, I, I remember specifically Michelle Obama saying, vote in person if you can, um, otherwise get an absentee ballot. Not something they've ever really said before. And it's in a quarantine where they're telling everyone to stay home. Um, but they, I think, are worried as well that there's gonna be shenanigans with absentee ballots. Um, I, I, I almost, I don't know, I almost hope that, it, that the issue isn't the actual outright suppression of people. If it's about the counting, the, the hope is that the Supreme Court is fair. I don't know. Why do I even think it will be? <laughs> um, uh, and again, Ruth, I wonder if you comment on how quickly this gets flipped into federal court or, you know, because I'm just coming back to Pennsylvania again, because there, what was interesting, Ruth, as well, you know, we lost going up the chain in the federal court system with Wisconsin and North Carolina. But in Pennsylvania, a challenge to their congressional plan was successfully overturned in state court. Um, what determines whether you end up in state court or federal court? And for these issues about the vote count, as opposed to drawing lines on the map for congressional districts, how, how how likely is it that this ends up in federal court where the Trump appointees and particularly in some key circuits, um, uh, uh, you know, are an important backstop? Um, if, if you just give Australian listeners a bit of a, that sort of forum shopping, you know, um, that, that yeah. you... Yeah. That's exactly it. I mean, it's called forum shopping for a reason. It is sort of um, mind blowing how many forums there are that you can um, take your cases through. Um, and there are also strategic decisions about, you know, do you want to get the super liberal judge down in, um, you know, in San Antonio, because then it's just going to get reversed on the way up. In fact, another one of my colleagues had on, on the internal slack this week, why do all the judges that actually make good democracy decisions put in like flashing lights, democracy is important, I care about democracy. It's like saying overturn me Supreme Court. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, you want just these very central decisions that seem to be very careful and, you know, not too one-sided or the other. Um, yeah. But in terms of the going from state to federal court, um, obviously people choose to go through state court if they think that the state court is on their side. Um, it, it is different in America in that many state um, judges are elected. State Supreme Court judges um, can be elected. They huh. run as a Republican or a Democrat. Um, or many of them are appointed by partisans. Um, who take, I know in Australia, technically, you know, you have judges appointed by partisans, but they, they try to say that they're appointing somebody who's not entirely partisan. Mm -hmm. um, in America, they sort of blatantly say, I, you know, I put this person on the court um, and they, and we see again and again, the partisan split in state courts. So 
people will go to a state court now that Bush v. Gore is the case, right, where the decision was made um, essentially in favor of Gore to keep counting the ballots in the state Supreme Court. And that got um, removed up to uh, the Supreme Court. Um, there's a case just at the moment, I guess, Pennsylvania, um, where the um, the court essentially tried to relax the rules to make um, it slightly easier to do early voting. And um, now there's an appeal asking the federal, like the US Supreme Court to overturn that um, on a federal constitutional ground. Essentially, that's you have to pick out something from the federal constitution to try to get in, um, to, you know, to the Supreme Court. And um, in many cases, you know, they won't take it. On elections, they often will. The argument mm. in that case is about, um, you know, when it, when it says that the legislature should get to decide the rules of elections, like you've talked about, um, can the courts get involved and set those rules as well? Should we just, you know, completely keep the courts out of it? That the problem with that kind of doctrine is it then says, well, let's keep the governor out of it. They're not the legislature. Well, honestly, let's keep the federal courts out of it. Let's just, you know, let it go yeah. crazy with whoever's, yeah. you know, been elected from gerrymandered districts. Yeah. Hey, um, in the interest of, um, I know, you know, we were representing, I, you know, the cases that you brought me in on, we had Democratic plaintiffs uh, in Wisconsin. In North Carolina, it was, it was a, a group, uh, the League of Women Voters, a nonpartisan group, but we were suing um, um, a Republican, uh, uh, I think it was the the attorney general or the election, well, I actually, forget who. Well, the, whoever's the statutory defender is different in different places. In that case, it was actually the state yeah, legislature. Yeah, but we were, anyway, it was a Republican, either the, the legislature or, yeah. But but in the interest of balance, let's just, could, do Republicans have a point in that are mail ballots a vehicle for fraud? Um, I have from, you know, it's, I haven't, taught this, I haven't been a statistics professor for a good five, six years now, but um, um, one of my examples um, is, is, a, is a Pennsylvania State Senate example um, where um, statistical analysis was used to show that the mismatch between votes cast in day, cast on election day and votes received in the mail were so out of proportion to one another in, in this one election that it was you know, clearly warranted a second look. Um, so there are, you can point to historical examples uh, where this clearly Democrats um, have, have been stuffing um, or it looks an awful lot like <laughs> Democrats were stuffing uh, absentee uh, and, and, and mail ballots um, to, 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 to steal an election, essentially. Um, what, what's the history of that and you know do the democrats have have clean hands here uh, or are there is bad behavior on the democratic side more something in the past what's the right way to think about this and particularly given the close contact you have with genuinely nonpartisan groups like league of women voters and common cause um where's that community in, in terms of where they assess where things are on this 
at least at the moment in American yeah. political history. I mean, in terms of the question of clean hands, I, I just think the partisans do whatever they can for themselves. Um, and so sometimes it's in their favor to talk about caring about democratic principles um, because that will help them in a partisan sense. Um, and then other times it's not. So I, I sort of agree with you that I don't think either side has clean hands. It's one of the reasons that I like working at a nonpartisan organization. I have worked at the Democrats. In fact, I remember when I was there, I, I was interested in the issue of felon disenfranchisement. And this is back in like 2011. And they were like, no, 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 we don't discuss that. Nobody, you know, now there is some interest in, in that because it's not seen as, you know, such a taboo topic. Um, at the same time, I also said to the Democrats in 2011, I think Illinois is doing a massive gerrymander and they were like, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, so you know, at least being nonpartisan, I can call out both sides. Um, uh, th that said, I don't have the, the money and the power of the, you know, the political organizations. You, you said before about, you know, bringing a, a knife to a gunfight. I do think after the 2016 election with the, you know, 3 million more votes for Hillary Clinton, yet losing the electoral college has meant that the main lawyer, um, Michael Elias, he's at Perkins Coie, yep. um, now has a huge um, fund behind him and has brought hundreds of cases. So I think that maybe in the past they didn't, but I, I really think both sides are pretty, pretty stocked up on guns. Um, hey, sorry, we're running short on time. We're nine minutes from the top of the hour. Um, uh, I haven't. I've been. I've been. I've been keeping an eye on audience questions, and some of the conversation has been in reaction to some of the comments we're getting. Um, one thing, real quickly, Ruth, uh, move through the last nine minutes with see, see how many questions we can get to, and that is, um, can you give us a bit of a preview about what? Um, again, to Australian lawyers uh, or law students, this will be totally novel but election day operations you describe your sort of first taste of this as sort of actually being at a polling place but what the work of lawyers around you know around the country on on election day perhaps particularly in this election given that you know the stakes seem awfully high and there's a lot of talk already about you know threats to the sanctity of the ballot so so what will be that army that mark has assembled and, and, and their counterparts on the Republican side, what does, what does the day of and perhaps the day after or the week after sort of look like? And, and how efficacious are those sorts of like almost real time sort of running off for an injunction? What does that sort of look like? Yeah, I mean, I know, again, back like 10 years ago, the frustration of doing voter protection was why does why do people only care about this on election day, you really should have fixed this problem three right. months ago. And I think the parties have taken that to heart. And that's why there's so much litigation now. Um, because they've worked out that once you get to election day, hey, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Open, you can like put some robocalls out to say, by the way, the polls are still happening. But mostly, you know, you shut a polling place for half an hour, people leave and that's that. Um, uh, not that there are not, not that there's nothing that you can do. Obviously, if there are like armed militias at polling places, there are probably things you can do to remove them. Um, but I do think that the stuff in advance of election day is um, particularly important. But Mark Elias is interesting too because his sort of background was as a recount lawyer. Um, he did the the um, Al Franken recount. Um, and so he always was the guy who had the team of fresh people that were well slept such that at midnight, as the election finished, they were ready to go wherever they needed to go to manage recounts to make sure that, I guess in their case, Democratic candidates would win. Um, and, um, and, and, and I don't know that there are enough I mean, there are a lot of lawyers, but I don't know that there's anybody who's put in reserve for, for recounts now. I think everybody's been litigating really hard these past few months to try to get things there. Also, because as I say, the, the election's already underway. I mean, under yeah, law, right. you have to leave the ballots to you know Americans in Australia 
Uh, you, yep. you probably, yep. you know, we're going to be getting your ballot soon, right? You have to send it out 45 days before um, and to anti-military voters. So um, it, it gets a little bit too late by election day. Now, in terms of the, the, the um, cases about what we talked about with counting, they're only going to happen after election day. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it seems to be that that'll be, I mean, um, just for Australian listeners, again, um, a site I've been visiting, um, the Stanford MIT project, uh, what is it, Ruth, Clean Elections? Healthy Elections Project. Healthy Elections, the Healthy, Healthy Elections, elections Project. Yeah. yeah, they are tracking the almost, I think it's north of 300 cases at the moment, um, in 43 jurisdictions and counting. Like, you name a place, a state, federal, local, um, uh, independent groups, democratic groups, the, the Trump campaign suing uh, to uh, stop uh, state and local officials uh, getting, you know, in their view, ahead of their skis on the provision of absentee and mail ballots and whatnot. Um, it is game on, but um, all the filings are there. It just gives you a sense of the, of the breadth and in a way that just for Australian viewers where um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a different system, suffice to say. Hey, um, let, let's conclude um, with, with our earlier conversation about SCOTUS. Um, got, a, got a ton of audience questions coming in. Um, Post-election, suppose Biden wins um, court stacking. Uh, your, th your thoughts about, or let's just more politely call it expanding um, yes. the court. And beginning, yeah. I think is what we're saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, in America, um, FDR was known for doing a court packing plan when he tried to get his new deal through. His response was, let's, you know, pack the court. And there's a lot of, well, you, I guess, would know more about it than I do. But basically, there was a lot of backlash um, to that. And it, and it meant that he had problems um, later on. Um, in this case, though, uh, the, the one hope of the, the sort of extreme diehard lefties that I know um, has been, well, look, if Trump really appoints someone, it just gives the Supreme Court such little legitimacy um, that it will mean that someone like Biden, who is otherwise you know, quite a centrist, might say, okay, let's expand it to 13 members. Uh, it would have to be 13, right? 11 is not enough. Um, but um, the thing I would be more interested in um, would be term limits. Um, so you can't actually, unlike Australia, where you have to retire, there's no mandatory retirement age and getting um, uh, something through, a, mem a constitutional amendment through is basically impossible in America. So, um, uh, so uh, but, but term limits, you could do something like have 18 year terms so that every two years there are nine justices, or if you wanna make it 13 or whatever, every two years you have to, you, you get a new justice. And so it just means that every president always gets two people that they appoint. Um, you would just, um, through the constitution, I mean, there would of course be fights about it, but the, there is, is a good argument that you just have people, the judges go to senior status. So they're not voting, they're still just kicking around the court building <laughs> um, after their 18 years on the court. Hey, um, I, I see a few of your Sydney classmates who we both know um, uh, have uh, asked it. So there's a question there from James. He was just commented, he really wanted, James Brown that is, uh, wanted to make sure we got to that question about court expansion. But um, David Smith. Um, um, <clears throat> this is my daughter actually. <laughs> uh, uh, David asks, uh, and of course David's with us here at the study center uh, um, and well known to, uh, uh, to, to I guess everybody on the call, but um, I don't want to put you out of a job, Ruth, 
Um, but what would it take to remake the US electoral system so that American democracy isn't so dependent on the courts? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think you, if it is possible to set up um, a, an independent federal body, the key is there, it would have to be independent. When I've tried to help states set up independent bodies, we have got to the point of having applications and then having a panel of auditors that is randomly chosen, like literally auditors like people from PwC, and then they go through the applications to select who is actually qualified. And then um, you get another lottery where you go through to select out people, right? So, I mean, it, the idea of having an electoral commission that is genuinely independent is really hard to understand. And there would also be problems constitutionally. I mean, the, the, the hope, I think, the, the way to do it, I think, would be this sort of 18-year um, terms, switch it over all the time so nobody has the Supreme Court for too long. Then you can't bank on the Supreme Court giving you an electoral win and maybe you have to actually convince voters to vote for you. Yeah. Um, above all, Ruth, and we're coming to the end of our time, and it, it's it's so striking. I think it's a it's a really, I think again for the people on this call, they may be aware of this, but um, American democracy <laughs> is a fierce, fierce beast. Uh, uh, access to the ballot box, the guarantee in the Constitution of uh, equality under the law, it, as a practical matter. That is something that is not settled. That is a struggle that goes on year in, year out, and nothing is ever. What's that? I saw a comment there that was talking about disenfranchisement before the Civil War. Um, the, the, why did anybody ever think it was a settled proposition? It's that, always been a struggle, I think. Yeah. That's right, and and for me, I think it's. I think in you know we talk about mature democracies. We talk about the rule of law and, and it f figures so prominently, certainly in the way the things that animate American foreign policy, or at least are said to, are publicly said to animate American foreign policy and Australian foreign policy for that matter. But the contrast between, you know, what, what American elections of late at least sort of, you know, reveal about the contested nature of those most basic propositions about American democracy. I mean, it's, I don't think it's a, it's really important, I think, for um, anybody looking at the United States from outside, particularly, I think, Australians, where these, these fundamental primitive elements of, of, of mass participatory democracy are, are, are far more settled and less controversial, but they are not in the United States. Um, and, and I think that's what, that's what I think, you know, the work you're doing, Ruth, week in, week out, is, is part of. You are, got your shoulder to the wheel. Uh, you are bearing witness to that um, uh, with the work you do and um, delighted to have your insight with us for the last hour, Ruth. We'll have to do this again. I think your journey, the way you started here in Australia and are now right at the heart of this really existential struggle uh, in the United States. And I, I, I say that not as a, in a partisan way. Uh, I, I mean it as a you know, as, as, as someone that's sort of devoted my life to the study of, of politics and, of, and, 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 and democratic process. Um, um, it's enormously valuable, the work you're doing and the insight you're able to share with us. So thank you for that, Ruth. Uh, and good luck in the, in the weeks ahead. Um, you, I, think, yeah. I think post-election, we'll, we'll definitely have to do this again and perhaps yeah, find a way. Special, yeah.
<laughs> and, and find a way for the US Study Centre, I think, to connect you uh, to, 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 to kids in Australia coming up through the ranks um, with an interest in these issues. Um, um, yeah, that'd be terrific. Okay, thank you everybody. That was amazing. The questions, I could barely keep up with them in real time. Um, very lively conversation, very lively uh, set of Q&A.